Whichever culture is most foreign to your own obviously has all the answers. On this episode, I interview a former Eastern Orthodox priest on his journey out of Eastern Orthodoxy, the rise of the Orthobro, and the false masculine appeal of Orthodoxy. So join us as we build, fight, protect, and lead. This is the Patriarchy. Rise up, for men of God have done with lesser. Rise up, for men, men of God have done with lesser things. Give heart and mind and soul and strength and serve the King of Kings. Lift high the cross of Christ. Tread where his feet have trod As brothers of the Son of Man Rise up, oh men of God I'm amazed that you're so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, he is to be accursed. That was Galatians 1, 6-9, and you're listening to the Patriarchy Podcast on Roundtable Media, a ministry of Sovereign King Church. I am Pastor Joseph Spurgeon. And it is a pleasure to be back with you today. You know, it's been a couple of weeks since we last released a new episode. And that's because I was in Israel. I've been there for the last week and a half with a group of men. We preached the gospel throughout the entire country. And man, what a blessed time it was. Not only getting to see and be in the actual locations recorded in Holy Scripture, but getting to preach the gospel in the open air in those exact locations preaching the name of Jesus in the place where he stood. We preached in the city gates of Jerusalem, Nazareth, Galilee, Bethlehem, and at a pride event to 300,000 people in Tel Aviv. We handed out thousands of tracts, had gospel conversations with Jews, Muslims, and even Christians. And there's a whole lot I want to report to you about this trip, and I'm, I'm going to be doing that on an upcoming episode But there is something that really stuck out to me that will be helpful to say as we start this episode. There are a lot of really beautiful church buildings in Israel. The Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was something I was super excited to see, and then there was like the Church of All Nations and on and on. Uh, Beautiful, ancient architecture. There were art from the time of the Crusades in the building, mosaics and, and paintings. There were buildings built into the side of mountains, like a monastery uh, called the Monastery of St. George. Or there was a monastery on the Mount of Temptation in Jericho, which you had to take a trolley up the mountain to get to it. I am a sucker for uh, architecture. I love old church buildings. I love cathedrals. And I also love that these buildings commemorate the historical sites of Christ's work or the work of some faithful follower of Christ. Yet, with all this beauty, there was a great issue that I noticed. And that's because the priests and the monks and the leaders in these churches 
operated more like museum curators than officers of God's church. One of the things that I took away from this trip was just how the religion in Israel, and in particular in Jerusalem, was very external. So external, whether it was the Jews, the Muslims, or sadly the Christians. External without much internal change. The Orthodox priests performed ceremonies that tourists watch, and in, in one place they even posed for a photo during the ritual. Uh, they sold trinkets in the church of the Holy Sepulcher, one of the priests that was his job. And he was not very happy about it. He, he, he was a pretty rude cuss. Uh, they didn't proclaim the gospel to those who came in. They did some ceremonies. There were incense and they sang. But no preaching of the gospel, no preaching even of the law of God. And therefore, really no influence on the culture of Israel to be had from these churches. It all had the appearance of beauty. The form of godliness was there, but no substance. I say this because we live in a time when our own culture in the West is decaying. Perversion is celebrated in taking over. The ungodly have worked to erode confidence in the West and, and in all of our systems. Feminism, uh, effeminacy have harmed the family. We can even go back and we look at the Industrial Revolution and and even more recently, the tech revolution. It's put many men at a disadvantage. Young men are rootless. They are adrift. Uh, women enter the college way more than men. And uh, men are hurting right now. Men want something, though, that will last throughout this. And when you're facing all the forces that are eroding out the foundations around you, you want something that has stood the test of time. Men want something with roots, uh, roots that go into the past. They want something that has weathered many storms and will stand firm in the current storm. And so some men fed up with the weak and feckless religion of many modern evangelical churches have begun to turn to Eastern Orthodoxy. The Eastern Orthodox Church claims to be the one true church that Christ established, and it claims to be unchanged and thus unchangeable. It also has the aura of being foreign to our own Western culture. There's a mystique to it. Something about uh, a culture being foreign to yours makes it you think that, well, there must be some truth in that, especially when your culture is, seems to be collapsing. Rod Dreher, in a blog post, he made these remarks about orthodoxy. Quote, one theme I have heard consistently from both evangelical men and Catholic men who convert to Eastern Orthodoxy is that they are sick of the feminization of their former churches. These men haven't been macho or troglodytic, at least not as far as I could tell. They just hate being told week in, week out, that traditional masculine characteristics are harmful or otherwise unwanted. Some of them don't like being led by priests they take to be soft men not necessarily gay, but oriented more towards pastoring in a feminine style. He goes on to say, I can't explain why orthodoxy is more accommodating of masculinity, but it is. There's a lot that is soft in orthodox worship, but I think the difference is that the moralistic, therapeutic, deist attitude that Christianity is supposed to be about niceness and personal happiness is radically alien to orthodoxy. It's not that orthodox spirituality is gloomy, but rather that it is serious and demanding and doesn't seek to sanctify secular therapeutic strategies. It's about healing the soul, all right, but not in the way of the world. 
and of too many churches. Dreher is not the only one to notice this movement. There are a group of primarily younger men, which some have called orthoros, who have left evangelicalism and Roman Catholicism and joined the Eastern Church looking for substance. They have a, a little community online. In fact, there's been a few events that I've even gone to. We've gone to some pro-life events, and I've seen a little group of what I would call orthobros dressed in black, waving black flags and, and uh, uh, flags with uh, Cairo and other Eastern uh, symbology. But here's the question. Are these orthobros actually finding what they're looking for? Is the Eastern Orthodox Church actually the answer that we need? Is it really ancient and unchanging? Is it really the religion of Christ? Does it give life, or is it more like what I experienced in Israel? To find out, I interviewed conservative Anglican pastor Matthew Joyner on this phenomenon. He was an Eastern Orthodox priest before converting to the Protestant faith. I asked him about his journey into the Eastern Church and his journey out of it. And in this interview, he gives me the good, the bad, and the ugly. So listen in. I think you're going to be challenged. Welcome back to the Patriarchy Podcast. I'm here with Matthew Joyner. He is the pastor of Reformation Anglican Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. He uh, is a former Eastern Orthodox priest. He was a priest for five years. He hosts a podcast called Taproot Faith. He also used to play uh, music professionally in a group called Drowning Jonah. You may have heard of them. Among others. And, uh, and among others. And he's been married for 12 years, has three children, and he is part of the patriarchy. So welcome to the patriarchy. Thank you. Good to be here. So Matthew, how do I get one of those cool dresses that you Anglicans wear? Uh, well, you have to ask some nice lady to stitch it for you and make sure the hem's right so you know too 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 long is you know shows off too much too short shows off too much leg so you have to make sure that you get it to your ankles so <laughs> well welcome and uh it's good to have you brother <laughs> good to be here. uh uh why don't you tell our listeners uh you were in the Eastern orthodox church one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the show mm -hmm. was there's a lot of young men they're looking for i would say fatherhood they're looking to for masculinity, uh, I guess stability and tradition. So they, uh, many of them have turned to Eastern Orthodox. You have the Ortho Bros. Yeah. So you, you were one of them. You were one of the Eastern Orthodox. Uh, uh, I don't know if you uh, were one of the Ortho Bros, but you were one of the Eastern Orthodox. How did, how did you get into that? Were you born into that? or No, no. So, so I, I grew up um, basically Bapticostal in Kentucky, um, you know, Southern Baptist as a kid, Assemblies of God in my teens. Um, it was into that whole '90s Christian music, you know, charismatic revival scene, um, and around the time I graduated high school, I started getting interested in church history, uh, and and ultimately there was another issue where I was sitting in the back of the church during a revival at my Assembly of God Church. You know, you've ever been to one of those? You know, you know what that's like. They go on for every head, every head bow. Oh yeah, yeah. Every. Well, it, every eye bowed and every head closed. <laughs> right. And, but also after like the sixth, the sixth hour and the, you know, um, you know, where the, the band is basically tired and we're all sitting in the back while the CD plays um, kind of thing. And I, I kind of picked up my Bible they gave me for a graduation gift. And I said, you know, I've been in the church since utero. I should probably read this thing. Um, and as I'm reading through Acts, especially, which is what charismatics like to 
at least back then, liked to hover over. Um, uh, there was just kind of this, I felt a disconnect. And so I started to wonder about what the history of the church really looked like. Um, so that kind of led me on a journey that ultimately was around a decade, uh, you know, all through my twenties kind of studying, um, got into theology really hardcore when I was working for a church here in Cincinnati, a Presbyterian church, I was working there as music director and, uh, uh, a former pastor there was this cat named R.C. Sproul. Um, oh, wow. nice. And uh, I had no idea who the heck he was, um, but some of the pe- <laughs> but some of the people there said, "Hey, you should, you know." I was asking questions, and they'd say, "Oh, well, R.C. wrote about this, or R.C. wrote about that. Read this, read this, listen to this podcast." And very quickly, R.C. became my hero, um, and he remains so. You can see I have him. <laughs> prominently displayed behind me here. Um, Mm -hmm. But um, so that got me into studying theology and then further into church history. Well, the problem um, was that as I got older and I'm working for different churches in the the main line, uh, I was butting up against the issue of a lot of liberalism that was happening. Um, And for me as a 20 something, what I've really had to come to deal with over the course of the last few years is that um, what had kind of happened to me was that I more or less made conservatism as a, an idea, uh, an idol. Um, and so it wasn't basically conservatism as a concept has had supplanted gospel truth as, as my object of pursuit. Um, and so I went running for what I thought was the most conservative option. Um, and I found myself in this little Eastern Orthodox church, uh, on the North end of Cincinnati, um, about 20 minutes from where I live now. Um, and they, they gave me a home. They gave me love. The, the priest there was a wonderful guy who spent a lot of time answering all of my asinine questions and, <laughs> um, you know, and, and I, be- I ended up becoming Orthodox. Um, and you know, in 2013, um, we got shipped off to seminary um, and uh, went to seminary in Pennsylvania. And I ended up after um, in the last year of seminary, I got ordained to the priesthood and uh, ended up staying in Eastern PA and, and ministering uh, in parishes there. So, so that's, that's kind of how I got there. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when you say uh, you made conservatism, your idol, mm-hmm. what do you, so, and you, and you, did you find conservatism in Eastern Orthodoxy? Hmm. Well, I'll start with what I meant by what I mean by making conservatism an idol. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I was working simultaneously planting a church, helping plant a church as the music director um, with a pastor on the Kentucky side of the river. Um, so here, here in Cincinnati, we're real close. To, you're same, you know, we're real close to the river, um, and mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm from Northern Kentucky, and so we were planting a church there with the newly formed Anglican church in North America, the denomination I belong to now. Um, and I, while at the same time, I was also music directing for a church that was a PC USA Presbyterian church. And it was during that time where the PC USA was removing their requirements for marital fidelity from their pastors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, so, okay, we know where that's going. Um, and then in the ACNA, I was, you know, having issues with like, you know, women or women ordained women were getting grandfathered in from the Episcopal church when the ACNA was formed and all that kind of thing. And so I was really struggling with, with those and a bunch of other issues that I thought were liberal 
and and um which i mean they are let's be fair <laughs> um yeah, yeah yeah um and but so for me it was this you know for me at the time there wasn't a stand and fight and and you know dig your heels in the ground and make your stand because the tradition that you have is beautiful and it's worth fighting for um mm. it was you know it was more like i got to get the heck out of here and find the most conservative option so that i don't have to fight um, okay. you know, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go hide under the banner of my conservative idol. So I don't have to fight basically. Um, uh, so, so really it was, it was partially, um, making conservatism, the idol, but also, uh, giving into the fight or flight, the flight side of, of that. Um, uh, cause I just didn't want to be bothered with the confrontation at the time, honestly. Um, and so I went and I found uh, a home in Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, now, to the question of whether it's as conservative as it seems, um, the short answer is no. Um, so there is a great deal of conservative things in terms of cultural conservatism within Eastern Orthodoxy. So, you know, you know, walk into an Orthodox church and try to change something um, <laughs> yeah. and you will soon get a lit incense uh, you know censor thrown at your head um, <laughs> um but in terms of other kinds of conservatism in terms of like social conservatism there's a, a huge swaths of the orthodox church are actually very progressive um so actually it was it was a big thing last year where the the head of the greek orthodox church in america who is technically the highest ranking orthodox cleric in america um celebrated a double baptism for a for two children of a same-sex married couple um mm -hmm. and this was really heavily publicized you've got you know i i know clergy who are um very pro lgbt lgbtq plus whatever um you know i know others who are outright marxists um i know you know um, which in, in a, especially in a church that suffered under persecution by communists, I don't understand how that could, how that's possible, but they're there, you know? So, so the really, the reality is, is that under, under the surface of, you know, the veneer of conservatism is really a great deal of social, um, liberalism that exists and is tolerated. So, so yeah. All right. Well, we'll probably come, I'm going to come back to that, sure. but let me, let's, uh, so we we talked about how you got involved in mm -hmm. the East Orthodox Church. Yeah. What was your what was what would you say your overall experience as a priest was? Um, I mean, it really depends on on you know, like anything else, it depends on what what your what context you're looking at. So, um, you know, in terms of the people, largely speaking, the people that I interacted with, my congregation, my parishioners, were lovely. Um, uh, you know, I have you have problems like anywhere else, but um, uh, and I had a, I had a bishop. In the Orthodox Church, who was a wonderful guy, I, I still miss him a lot. Actually, he was a he was a great guy. He um, was a guy who converted to Orthodoxy while studying at Oral Roberts University, if you can believe that one or not. Um, oh wow! And um, just was a really good, solid guy who loved his people, and you know. Um, but you know, but then there was also the thing that really smacked me right in the face right away. Getting out into the parish is realizing that you're dealing with a just countless people. I mean, you can guarantee that when you walk into a parish, 98% of the people are going to be uncatechized, like completely uncatechized. 
Um, you know, so you walk in with a great deal of work to do. Um, and you meet a lot of resistance if you dare to try to teach them, <laughs> you know? Mm. Um, so, so that's, that's an issue. Um, but beyond that kind of thing, you know, we, we were generally speaking treated really well. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, so that's, it wasn't, it wasn't terrible, uh, as far as ministering as a priest, it was pretty, pretty, pretty decent actually. Well, what was the, maybe, so you're, you're no longer East Orthodox priest, mm -hmm. so there must be some reason for that. Yeah. What, what, what was like the, the kind of one thing that got you started? Um, well, one, one, the one thing is the difficult part. Um, because for me, um, you know, some people have a one issue, you know, some people have a, you know, for some people it's like, oh, they ordain women, I'm out of here. Um, you know, for me with orthodoxy, my issue with orthodoxy is that it dead, it died the death of a thousand cuts for me. It wasn't, it wasn't any one big issue. It was 10,000 little things that, that all, um, you know, if you, if you cut that, if you cut it long enough, it bleeds to death. If you cut it enough, it bleeds to death. And so, mm -hmm. um, but one of the big things for me, um, there were three issues in seminary that I was really starting to struggle with. It was already while I was in seminary, uh, I was asking questions. Um, the first was I could not for the life of me understand why the Orthodox church holds the, the view that it does toward penal substitutionary atonement theory, um, which is basically an outright rejection of it. Um, uh, I, I know some clergy who go so far as to call PSA a heresy. Um, oh, wow. and, um, uh, and actually my, my friend, uh, Joshua Shooping, who we've talked about, he's been on Gavin Ortland's show and he's been on, you know, some other shows. He's, he's, um, uh, he's actually written a book about this, about the penal substitution in the fathers, uh, just demonstrating it clearly. Um, but the Eastern church has kind of taken this line that you actually hear a lot of modern liberal theologians use, which is that, oh, that's divine child abuse. We don't believe in that. Um, you know, we actually believe that what happened on the cross was that Christ voluntarily entered death for us to destroy death from the inside. So Christus Victor, basically the Christus Victor model, which is fine. Yep. I don't have any problem with that. That's perfectly orthodox, but that's, that's not the whole scheme of what that's happened. part of, that's, that's part of the atonement, but not all right, of it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and the thing is, I've said before that like, I don't, there are what four major atonement theories, you know, PSA, Christus Victor, ransom theory, recapitulation theory. And I have said many times, at the very least, because we, we worship an infinite God, at the very least, some of all of those has to be right. <laughs> right? You know, part, part, of, part of each of those has to have happened. Um, you know, we, we can't just, you know, but we can't, we can't deny the fact that the dominant view rides in the PSA view, you know, you, you can't just, you know, and, and without, without the PSA view, the entire old Testament sacrificial system doesn't make any sense at all. Um, which is, yep. which is really what I was starting to butt up against. I started to ask the question, if, if penal substitution isn't the main thing we're supposed to really be looking at here, or at least put a lot more weight on it than we are, then what in the world were all those sacrifices about? What was all that blood about? Um, in the Old Testament, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, there was that. There then there was the question that I had about praying for the dead, um, because the Orthodox Church insists on praying praying for the dead. Um, you know that you you must you know from the moment somebody dies, 
you know, you have a special service that's called a panikita. Um, you pray for them on the third day after they die, the ninth day after they die, the 40th day after they die, and then every year on the anniversary of their death. And in each of these services, you're explicitly asking God to forgive them of their sins and to give them entrance into heaven. Well, the question that I had was, if we don't believe in purgatory, which the Orthodox are adamant that they don't, what's the point in praying for them? <laughs> hey, right. Where are where, where are they that you need to pray for them so they can get somewhere exactly, else? Exactly. And then and you have you have a theory called the toll houses, which we can get into some other time if you want to. But it's it's but but the question is if 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 there's if there's not purgatory that you're praying people out of, what's what, what's the point? Okay. Um, then the then there's the issue of original sin, um, which they also do not believe in, um, at least not the way that Western the Western Church has historically um, defined it, um, along with original guilt. They don't believe that. Um, they hold mm -hmm. to what they call ancestral sin. So you you receive mortality uh, rather than a sinful nature. So so in reality, they in the, in the East they view the fall as not being as bad as the West and especially Calvinists um, view it as. So they, they would deny total depravity completely. Um, so, so are there, they're Pelagian essentially. Then, I would, right? I would say so. Uh, or, or, okay. or riding the hard line between semi and full Pelagian. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's, so those, so those things were probably the three big issues. Um, Later on, after I got out of school, I would, uh, and was, was in a parish and had time to look at things on my own. Um, um, and of course the, this, all these questions were just kind of creeping in while I was in seminary and I was asking questions and, you know, even though I was struggling, I was being told, you know, just trust the church. The trust, the church is bigger than you. The church is bigger than it's older than the rest of us. Just trust the church, lean into the church. You'll be okay. And so I did that and I, and I, I leaned into it. I submitted to ordination, went through the whole thing and. Um, and, and, but once I was out and I was free to, I had all this time on my hands <laughs> in a, in an empty church most of the week, uh, cause I was full, I was full time. Uh, mm -hmm. I was able to study and, and, and read and, and pursue resources and pursue questions where they went. Um, and I really dived back into scripture, which wasn't as heavily emphasized in, in seminary. It was more liturgy, church fathers, that kind of thing, um, in seminary. So and that is a dangerous thing. <laughs> uh, getting back into scripture is a dangerous thing. And, and it led me kind of down the path of like Mary and devotion is not in the scripture. Praying for the dead is not in the scripture. These are, these are things that we have no warrant to do. And, and all of these, all of these tiny cuts just snow, just snowballed. Um, until I got to the point where I, I just said, you know, uh, it, it was. It wasn't just negative. It wasn't just I. You know what the church is saying is wrong. It was also, what does the Bible say? Um, and I remember one day I went up to my wife. Went down. I uh, came up from my office to my to my wife, and I said, "Honey, um, I think I'm a Calvinist again." <laughs> and she she kind of looked at me with this like, "What?" <laughs> um, <laughs> and and so we actually. Um, we sat down together and we didn't do anything right away. Um, we actually sat down together and, and we went through the new Testament line by line together for a year. Um, and, and after that year was up, um, you know, we, we, we just kind of said, 
all right, what are we going to do? <laughs> where, mm. where are we going? Um, and uh, a friend of mine who knew my situation called me and said, you know, there's, there's a, did you know that there's an Anglican church here in Cincinnati that's looking for a pastor? And I said, no, I did not know that actually. Um, and applied for it. And by God's providence was, was offered the gig. And so we, we moved back home. Um, but that whole process, you know, like I said, I was in the church for 10 years, um, all totaled. And, uh, you know, and there were many, many, many issues, uh, not just, not just the ones that I've mentioned. So uh, it seems to be, uh, I'm hearing the, the undertow of the, the underthought here of, of authority and, mm-hmm. and, uh, tell us a little bit about what, what's, what is the authority of Eastern Orthodox? Uh, okay. So the, the authority structure is, so Roman Catholics and Protestants have it easy. Okay. Because Roman Catholics can say the authority is the magisterium of the church. Um, the Protestants can say sola scriptura. <laughs> okay, that's easy. The Orthodox Church is not quite that easy. Um, because one thing you have to recognize is that the Orthodox Church is not a thing. That doesn't exist. There are only Orthodox churches, national Orthodox churches, that are in communion with each other. Okay, And so in terms of authority, well, what kind of authority are we talking about? Are we talking about doctrinal authority, ecclesiastical authority, you know, who has the authority to excommunicate who, uh, those kinds of things. So those, those are kind of multi-layered issues. Generally speaking, though, if you're talking about doctrinal authority, um, Protestants like to talk about, about Catholicism as having the scripture and tradition dichotomy, right? Mm-hmm. Again, that, yep. that doesn't exist in orthodoxy. Um, there is only the great tradition of which scripture is a part. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, they, they will say that scripture is the written inspired, the inspired written part of tradition. Um, but tradition as a whole encompasses a, a whole heck of a lot more than scripture. Um, so you have scripture, you have the ecumenical councils and their, their doctrinal decrees. You have the writings of the church fathers. You have the hymnody of the church. You have the liturgical life of the church. So literally the hymns and the liturgies of the church are seen as sources of authority and of even um, divine revelation in some cases. Mm-hmm. Um, iconography, as I've mentioned. And then there are, some, there are some who actually, and I wish I was making this up, but there are some who consider church architecture to be a source of, 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 um, even divine inspiration, but certainly of authority. Um, so. so when you say authority, there's authority and then there's revelation, right? Is all of this considered revelation or is just scripture considered revelation or it's, it, where it gets messy? It's, it's all, it's all considered revelation because it's all, it's all considered, um, the great tradition is that which is handed down by the apostles really. And so as such, it's authoritative. And as such, it's also revealed. They do it because it's been revealed. And it's authoritative because it's revealed. Now, the, the Roman Catholics have the, the magisterium mm-hmm. to tell you what part of tradition is, or what tradition is. Right. So who does that in Eastern Orthodoxy? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, <laughs> okay. Well, because because you, you, get, you get varying things, right? And now, there, there are... Um, I've gotten flack for using this example um, because people say it's too simplistic or whatever. 
but the problem is, is that orthodoxy is a system. So if you're going to take it, you have to take it all, right? Um, so if if tradition is the problem with tradition is that if it's authoritative, if there's variation in the tradition, then where it happens to the authority, right? So the apostle that I'm named after, okay, Matthew the apostle, an evangelist, okay, there are no less than three traditional accounts of his martyrdom, okay, which one's right, okay, if, if this is tradition that's been passed along, which one of those accounts is correct, and which one's the authoritative one, okay, so something as silly as that calls into question so many other things, because who, who says, who says what this is? Who says what it is the authority? And who's, who is able to say this is the right one? You know. So, for example, um, on, again, on the issue of saints, um, so one of the arch heretics for modern orthodoxy is Thomas Aquinas. Okay, mm. I know he's I know he's in the Reformed news right now, or whatever has been for a while, but yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, whatever. Um, but he's kind of persona non grata in the Orthodox Church. Well, the Bulgarian Orthodox Church considered him a saint for several centuries and venerated him as a saint. So, who's right? <laughs> you know, is he a saint? Isn't he a saint? So, so these, these kinds of issues really become a problem. Um, right now, right now, as we speak in the Orthodox Church, there is a, and it's been going on for a couple of years, there's a tremendous amount of disagreement and fighting about what the tradition says the role of the ecumenical patriarch of Constantinople is. And nobody can agree. Um, in 2016, he tried to call an ecum another ecumenical council. He called it a great and holy council. But um, he tried to call a council, and half the church didn't show up because they didn't rec recognize his authority. And the only people that showed up were the people who thought that, his tr that the tradition gave him that authority. So there is no overarching traditional interpretation and authority that says you must believe this you must practice this um and it's it's only in those things that are kind of repetitively done like the liturgy itself for example the and, and the things that are concrete like the writings of the fathers that really tell mm. us kind of what the tradition is um or or in some sense so when you bring this up to the uh, uh, you were a priest you bring mm -hmm. it up to you right what was the answer that you give <laughs> uh, ordinarily, the you is it a mystery? Is that well, the, the mystery the mystery thing gets thrown around a lot. A lot of times, people get punt, yeah. they punt to ministry to mystery. Um, mm. But as a clergyman, as a, as a priest, um, you you have one. If somebody comes to you with something, you have one extra layer for yourself where you're able to say, "I can I can pass the buck," and that is. I'll check with the bishop and see what he says. Um, and so, and, and so, because ultimately in every diocese, it's whatever the bishop says is, is what you're going to do. It's what you're going to, um, you know, so, you know, for me, I, I couldn't do anything without, you know, liturgically or otherwise without my bishop's blessing. Um, so every, every time I had a baptism, every time I was doing a wedding, every time I was doing whatever, you know, outside of the normal Sunday morning, Saturday night services, I had to clear it with the bishop and get his blessing. So everything, everything gets funneled up to his office. So that's really, the bishop is really where the rubber meets the road um, with, with orthodoxy, honestly, on the ground. 
All right. Well, uh, um, so that's how you got out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is, that, is that how difficult has it been for you to to get out of that? How has that impacted you, your family? Um, it it was it was tough. Um, we we more or less um, our friends more or less walked away <laughs> um, mm-hmm. from us. I, I had somebody um, I had somebody call me when I announced my my departure um, to let me know that I was now on the path to hell. Um, and that I was dragging my children along with me, um, and, and those kinds of things. So it's, it's, it's been difficult. Um, um, you know, the friends that the friends that I, that I had in seminary and others, um, um, you know, I mean, there, there are quite, there are a few, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to paint a picture of that. I'm trying to paint a picture that we were totally abandoned by everybody and they all hate us. No, there are, there are some that still keep in touch with us, still love us, you know, still contact us and check and see how we're doing all that kind of stuff. But, Generally speaking, um, it it was very difficult. Um, uh, not not long ago, actually, I had a I had a Facebook message out of nowhere from somebody I didn't even know, um, who sent me a message, and all it said was, uh, "Priests who depart from the path are as welcome in the church as a dog." <laughs> That's all it said, you know. Right. So they're, they're, it, trying to leave the Orthodox Church is. Um, that's seen as a really big deal because you're, you're, it's, it's seen as the same as abandoning Christ. Um, because, because Christ is so, um, I Id- so identified with the institutional church that if you leave it, you're apostatizing and leaving Christ. So, and that, that's interesting to me because you, you get the whole kind of like, well, the East, the Eastern Orthodox church is the church. It, it's the church. Christ only established one church. That is the church. And yet you just said a few minutes ago, there is no such thing as the Eastern Orthodox right, Church. Right. How how do you square that? <laughs> I, I honestly don't know. I mean, well, I mean, because it's 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 seen as you know the church sort of subsists in Christ, right? And that you are, you know, those bishops that are in communion with Him and then in communion with each other, and that constitutes the church, right? So it it doesn't really. You know, you'll have people who say, "Oh, yes, there is an Orthodox Church," and then you'll have people who say, "Oh, no, there isn't an Orthodox Church." And so that's just another one of those sort of inconsistencies um, that you'll see across the board. All right. Well, that's that's uh, that's uh, changed gears just a little bit. Okay. Um, there seems to be a movement of, I would say, young men converting to Eastern Orthodoxy. Um, what do you, what do you think like the main attraction is? Why, it, as I kind of start off the interview, I said a lot of people, uh, uh, young men, uh, I think they're looking for fathers, hungering for fathers. Absolutely. Uh, uh, uh we live in a very, what do you want to say? Transient world. Not a lot of rootedness. Uh, a lot of things are changing. The ground's kind of shaking underneath us. And so, uh, what do you think it is about Eastern Orthodox that maybe attracts these young men? Well, I, I think one one of the things I, I actually um, had some some uh, things that I thought up on this. But one of the things that you you just hit right there was the the father hunger thing um, that I hadn't really considered uh, before. But when you come into Orthodoxy, that word gets thrown around everywhere. Um, I mean, even, even when you walk into your parish, you the guy standing up front, what do you call him? father um 
you know, the, the people that you look to as your authorities to tell you what to believe are the fathers of the church. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, so there's, there's this, there is very much this father yearning. And I think some guys find it there. Um, it is normal normative for most Orthodox Christians to have a spiritual father. Um, so your, your confessor, what in the, in the West, they tend to call a confessor, your spiritual father. Um, uh, I, I had one, you know, we all had one. Um, I, I was spiritual father to several people, you know, when I was a priest, you know, so it's, um, that sort of father need is, I think definitely a part of it, but there's a, there's a bunch of different things. Um, and one of those things for young men, I think is easily identifiable masculine roles, right? Men can be priests, women cannot, you know, <laughs> you know, uh, mm -hmm. those kinds of things. It's, it's, it's very clear, um, in the church outside the church, maybe not so much. Um, because I know most Orthodox people I know outside the church are very egalitarian. Um, but inside the church, not so much. So that's clear. Um, and honestly, I think for guys who are maybe struggling with their masculinity, um, I think that might be attractive because it, it says, oh, look, here's a place where there's really clearly defined roles and I can latch onto this and, and not have to worry so much about it. Um, you know, I, I can, I can find a sense of my masculinity uh, where this, where the roles are really clearly defined. Um, uh, there's also really clearly outlined praxis. Like, this is what we do. This is what we always do. You show up to church, you know, what's expected of you. When you get up and do your morning prayers in your house, you know, what's expected of you. The forms don't change there. There's that. Um, it's actually one of the things that I think, um, and this gets pointed out a lot by different people, that one of the things that really attracts men to orthodoxy is that orthodoxy actually expects something of you. Um, you know, you don't just come in, you know, warm a pew with your butt for an hour and a half and then go home. Um, you, there are things you got to do and the things you got to do can be tough. Um, you know, so in the Orthodox church, you fast for more than half the year. Um, hmm. and, and you're told what to fast from. Um, so for, for the 40 days leading up to Easter, 40 days leading up to Christmas, the apostles fast, the dormition fast every Wednesday and Friday through the year. Um, and then on Saturdays or whenever you're getting ready to receive the Eucharist, no meat, fish, wine, dairy, or oil. You know, you're, you're a vegan for half the year. Um, you know, um, in some of the more, that's pretty, that's pretty masculine. <laughs> yeah. I, I know, right. Um, so yeah. But then on, then on Easter, the Greeks are killing and roasting a, a whole lamb on their front yard, on their front yard. You know, that's, that's pretty cool. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I ain't going to, you know, some, 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 you know, big tall Greek guy named Spiros with a, with a, a lamb on a spit in his front yard. I'm not going to shake a, you know, I'm not going to shake my head at that. I'm going to say, cut me a slice. Um, yes, but, um, but, but there, but there is things that are expected of you. You know, you're expected to make prostrations in your prayers, like during Holy week. Um, and, and, and different times during Lent, especially you're going to these services and you're doing, you know, sometimes upward of a hundred prostrations. Um, in a service, you get up and your legs are burning, your back is burning. There's physical things expected of you. Um, and so those are things that are, I think, attractive to some, to some guys. Um, now, now this is a little more subjective, 
Um, but it is, it has an element of beauty about it. Um, or at least beauty is, in, is important. Um, and, and the thing is, I think, you know, we were chatting a little bit about that yesterday, that, that sometimes that can attract the more effeminate, uh, minded guys. Um, the more aesthetic things are can attract guys that are of a, of a less than masculine, less than masculine, um, demeanor. But I think it also appeals because I don't think, um, I don't think that men are, are quite as utilitarian as they're sometimes portrayed to be. Um, you know, and, and that can be very evidenced by the fact that, every, you know, we are all much more attracted to, um, objectively beautiful women. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, um, you know, so it's, it's, we, there is a, there is beauty that is a part of what we look for. Um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you look at a, uh, the, the architecture sometimes, I mean, mm-hmm. it can, it can take your breath away Absolutely. to look at like a cathedral or, or, uh, the Hagia Sophia mm-hmm. or something like that. You know, it, it, uh, I think that is, you're right. That's a thing that's attractive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you, and, and, and the, you know, and it, and it took, you know, the Hagia Sophia, I mean, it took guys to build that thing. You know, I mean, this is not, you know, I mean, it, it took burly, sweaty guys that were, you know, cut in stone by hand. I mean, this, this was a, that was a manly endeavor to build that thing um, and, and, and to make it beautiful. Um, it, it was, was a, was a great manly undertaking that, that they, that they did. Um, so there's that. One thing that I think some people don't think about, but I think it's, it is important to realize, and especially if you're coming from a clergy perspective, orthodoxy is very elaborate. Um, to put together any one service requires no fewer than four or five books to put the service together. Mm. Um, and, and more if it's a Sunday morning or a more elaborate feast or whatever you know it may be. So you have to actually, there's a certain level of mastery that it requires to, especially to be in the clergy, to have a mastery over the liturgical life and, and, you know, what goes where and what happens when and, and all these pieces. So there, there is that. And I know that is very attractive to, to many men. Um, cause for, I know for many men, they are disinterested in a lot of evangelical churches cause it's just too stinking easy, you know, you know, come to church, drink my coffee, sing a few songs and go home. There's nothing that challenges me about that. But the services being elaborate in orthodoxy can be it can be an attraction to some to some guys. Um, one of the biggest ones that I hear, and this this is partly what attracted me. You, you, when, when I say this, you'll hear my journey in this, and that is that Western and American culture and the Western and American churches are largely dying, um, or or becoming woke or becoming liberal, whatever it is, and this is kind of seen as um, a way to fight back against that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. and so I, I hear that a lot. It's because there's this aura of unchangeableness, I guess, right. uh, that it's ancient. Yep. So, so how ancient are actually the practices and unchangeable are they? Maybe that's a good question. Not very, uh, depending on what you're talking about. Um, so because, you know, the, the, the question I think really is not, you know, oh, look, this is 1500 years old. Oh, look, this is 1600 years old. When, when the claim is that these practices are apostolic in nature, they have to be 2000 years old. Okay. 
and you have to mm-hmm. and you have to be able to show that what was believed preached practiced came from you know that, that spans the breadth of those centuries and and orthodoxy does not have the cushion that Roman Catholicism does now, thanks to John Henry Newman, with the development of doctrine theory, um, they don't have that. So, if if the question is, you know, we are the unchanged church, well, you have to actually be able to demonstrate that it is actually, in fact, unchanged in praxis, theology, and piety, um, and that simply isn't the case. So, for example. Um, liturgical variation um the, the the liturgy that is celebrated today by the eastern orthodox church um is 15 to 1600 years old right it's still pretty old mm-hmm. but it's not 2000 years old um and it ha- it itself has gone through many revisions um the current form of it is probably 600 years old um, maybe, uh, maybe even, maybe even newer than that. Um, there, yeah, they call it the Chrysostom, uh, liturgy, yeah, right? Yeah. The liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. Yeah. yeah. But how, <laughs> how actually close is it to what John Chrysostom did? It, there, there's, there's not a ton of agreement there. Um, the, because the reality is, is it probably, his name probably got attached to it because of some, amendments that he made to the liturgy during his lifetime um kind of in a similar way to how the the another name for the old latin mass is the liturgy of saint gregory the great um Mm -hmm. he didn't write that liturgy he simply made some revisions and and carved and you know shaved off some barnacles um but you know another big one is the veneration of icons right that is huge I mean, when you think of orthodoxy, you think of icons. Um, And if if your audience hasn't seen it, they should go out and they should watch Gavin Ortland's video on icons. He absolutely demolished this idea that uh, icon veneration had any precedent in the ancient um, patristic period of the church at all. Um, You know, icon veneration is an imperial Byzantine innovation full stop um you know there, there is literally no evidence that anything remotely like it was was practiced before the year 500 um so and then you, you have the same thing is true of marian devotions um and you know i've said before that you know the orthodox church has a veneration of mary that would make the most traditional ardent roman catholic blush wow. um and the, those those are things that are you do not see them in the first 500 years of the church. You will, you will scour in vain in the early patristic writings to try to find any mention of her beyond what's said in the Chalcedonian definition um, and, and things like that, you know, or, or just, or just a blanket statement that Christ was born of a virgin, um, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so those things, you know, these, these traditions are not 2000 years old. It's not unchanged. Um, and what a lot of people will fall back to is they will fall back to what they call the consensus of the fathers, you know, and you will hear people say the fathers say this, or the fathers say that, and use that as a justification for sort of this unchanging character of the church. Well, the problem is you can 
walk off you can walk up to a shelf and pull a you know any two church fathers off the shelf on the same topic and they won't agree um outside of more or less basic nicene orthodoxy the church fathers don't actually agree on that much um there there are opinions all over the spectrum so the idea of a patristic consensus that justifies an unchanging institutional church is is just not it's just not the case um you've 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 been an east orthodox priest mm-hmm. uh, I, you've kind of already hinted at this this is kind of going along with this going getting back to the the, the masculine aspect of it sure how much you know the orthobros on the line? How much of what they're pushing is reality? Oh man, we well, you know what and has feminism impacted Eastern Orthodox? Y- yes, it has. Um, so, okay. as far as the orthobros, um, when I a lot of the orthobros are largely converts. Um, uh, I, I went to a seminary that was in the Russian tradition, and uh, we called them the Konvertsky Dosk. <laughs> um, and. And you see, you see these guys when they show up to school. They, you know, they stop cutting their hair, they stop trimming their beards. They, you know, you know, when they make the sign of the cross, it has to be the, as big as possible, and you know, um, you know, all this kind of stuff. And and it, it, the way that I can describe, and I and I went through some of this too, but I I had the benefit. A lot of these guys don't have this benefit. I had the benefit of being married and having a wife to say who wasn't Orthodox yet, who was saying, calm yourself, <laughs> you know? Um, but, you know, Orthobros, convert Docs, you know, convert Orthodox single young men uh, are like caged age Calvinists on crack with Red Bull running into their veins. <laughs> um, it, it's, I mean, it, it just, they, they can be really obnoxious really really obnoxious um and 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 ultimately what it comes down to is really there's this sense of almost wanting to be a monastic without being a monastic um because in the orthodox world there's no higher calling than to be a monk really if it really boils down to it um and so you i've I've known a lot of these guys in my life even married guys who just desperately want to be monk and so they're going to live like one um and but it's kind of like larping then isn't it oh absolutely Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But, but in terms of, in terms of, um, you know, what they put out there, a lot of times what you're going to get is the most extreme, um, views on everything just kind of put out there as the mainstream Orthodox view on everything. Um, which I mean, is no different than, you know, a cage stage Calvinist guy who, you know, you know, without realizing it is putting, um, you know, everything is actually hyper Calvinism and, you know, they need to be pulled back a little bit. Right. Um, but there's not a whole lot of correction that happens with some of these guys, unfortunately. Um, and a lot of times you have guys like me who were, you know, somewhat ortho bros. And then they, they think, Oh, I'm a convert. I found the Orthodox church. I have to go to seminary. Um, I have to pursue ordination and I have to do all this. And so that happens quite a bit. Um, but, um, in terms of the feminism question, you know, yeah, I mentioned earlier that, um, you know, in the church itself, it, it is, you know, you might even say patriarchal in a sense. I mean, cause, um, 
you know, in, in the great churches, the great national churches, that's the name that is given to the, to the chief bishop, the patriarch, um, the patriarch of Constantinople, mm -hmm. the patriarch of Moscow, so forth and so on. Um, but on the ground, um, at least, and, and everything I say here is from my experience. Okay. So, you know, yeah, sure. do your own research, you know, um, but I experienced an enormous amount of egalitarianism, um, of effeminacy, um, you know, either married clergy, married laymen, even a lot of monks, um, who were very effeminate. Um, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the men were led by their wives and not leading their wives. Um, and so orthodoxy is not, orthodoxy itself is not a, um, it's not a, it's not a magic wand to make men, men, um, as I think some guys maybe think it is because they, they see these guys walking around long black, black robes with Gandalf beards that can tuck into their belt singing, you know, Russian chant, you know, in tones that will rattle the floorboards. And they think that's what orthodoxy is. It, it isn't, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, what you see, that's what's put out there, but it's, once you actually get into a parish, once you actually get into everyday life, it's a very different animal. Okay. How does, uh, speaking of that, how does the Eastern view of truth, uh, mystery, how does that impact a uh, masculinity compared to the reformed view? Well, I would, I would say, um, and, and this is a little bit difficult to answer um, because, again, the orthodox view of mystery is mystery. Um, but you will hear a lot that if you have questions about certain things in the in the orthodox church, if you like, for example, when I went and asked my question about praying for the dead that I mentioned earlier, and I was mm -hmm. mentioning that it didn't make sense to me because there wasn't a purgatory. The answer that I was given was you're thinking like a Westerner. So stop thinking like a Westerner. My response was, I am a Westerner. And I live in a Western country and a Western society. Stop punting to stop thinking like a Westerner. We have to actually answer these questions at some point um, because of the culture that we're living in and we're ministering in. Um, but in reality, Westerners, and I think we reformed guys excel at this better than anybody. Um, you know, as evidenced by all my systematic theologies that I have over here, we think very in a very linear fashion. This truth leads mm -hmm. to this truth, leads to this truth, leads to this truth, right? And we can see a succession of truth, you know, an accession of a succession of logic that gets us to our end goal, right? Um, and um, Brian Chapel has actually had a really helpful um, uh, uh, thing on this, where he talks about how in the East the the way to get to truth is to talk around the truth so that you get to it so it's not linear it's very circular and so they approach it by talking around it so the way you get to the truth is that you litur you liturgize about it and then you sing about it and then you read the scripture about it and then you see what the fathers say about it and all of these things work in this sort of swirled fashion to to kind of run together in the middle to create this truth well the thing is, especially for us here in the West, we don't naturally think that way. You know, we we are people who are linear and who are, you know, give me my logical bam, 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 bam. 
and at least in my experience, that's how most, that's how most men I know want to want things laid out. You know, I, I don't, you know, I don't want to have to sit here and listen to somebody talk around, you know, because we call that beating around the bush, you know, um, you know, when, when those things happen to me, I instantly hear the crowds from Monty Python and the Holy Grail get on with it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so just, just say what you mean, mean what you say, you know, and, and move on with it. So a, a good example of this at the end of every Orthodox liturgy, with the exception of the Sunday morning services, but at the end of every service, there's a line that the priest has to say, he has to chant it out loud. And that line is most holy Theotokos, most holy mother of God, save us. Okay. Now, on its face, I've had, I had, when I was a priest, I had guys come who were from a Presbyterian perspective, whatever. They come to the whole service. Everything's good to go. I get two seconds before the end of the service and I say, most holy mother of God, save us. And those guys turn around and walk out and never, never come back again. Right. And with good reason, right? Because that's, mm -hmm. that's heresy. But if you, if you, if you look into what the Orthodox say about it, they will give you page after page after page after page after nuance after nuance after nuance of what that little phrase actually is attempting to say. Whereas a Westerner, I'm I'm saying, well, why can't you just say something else, right? If what you mean is not "Most Holy Mother of God, save us," why say "Most Holy Mother of God, save us"? <laughs> you know, like even I mean. It's still it's still problematic theology, but even Most Holy Mother of God, pray for us would be better <laughs> than Most Holy Mother of God, yep. save us. Um, you know, so that and that's really the issue is it's theology is not done in a straightforward way. Um, the other issue is that the way that they get at truth is through negation. It's called apophatic theology, um, and what they believe is, uh, is that anything you say about God is going to necessarily fall short of the mark. So therefore we can't actually say anything affirmative about God. So all we can say about him is by negation. So the only way to do theology is by saying what he isn't essentially. Mm. I mean, that's a very simplistic way of getting at it, but that's basically the idea. So, but the problem is that's a really, that that's a struggle to do anything purely by negation. Um, and, and I, and I struggle with the idea that you can't say anything true about God, um, simply because your language is limited. I mean, he gave us the, he gave us the Bible. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he, he gave us his word, which is written in human language in order to express who he is. You know, God is the Lord and he has revealed himself to us. How has he revealed himself to us in scripture? And the scripture is filled with positive affirmations about, about who God is, you know? So I think that those things, at least for me as a man, and I don't know about your guys, you, you know, you guys that, that are watching or that your audience, but for me getting, having to work around issues is for me, the more masculine way is to just state what you have to say and move on with it, you know, speak the truth and move on. Um, and, and so for me, and, and again, I realize there are cultural things at play here. Um, I'm speaking specifically for Western men who are approaching Eastern Orthodoxy to ask the question, you know, what is the attraction? If this is the way that you think as a Western modern man, you know, isn't it better just to get to it 
get to what's actually being said, get to the truth, not have to dance around it uh, in order to get to it. Um, so, and that, but then in terms of mystery, right? Um, everything kind of is a mystery, right? In, in fact, in the Eastern church, they, they don't call the sacraments, the sacraments, they call them the great mysteries. Um, and so everything is, has this mysterious character to it, um, that you can't really know entirely. Um, but mystery also gives way to mysticism, which is an entirely different, um, mm. subject for another day. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, two more questions. Yeah. Uh, um, what are the main dangers in Eastern Orthodoxy? I mean, you left it. So, uh, uh, <laughs> main dangers, especially as we think of these young, these men trying to get into it. Right. What is, what's the danger? Um, well, the first thing I would say is that as, as you're looking at all of these, and the biggest primary danger is, is that you're looking at all these things, you're looking at a denial of penal substitution or at least a downplaying of it. You know, you're looking at prayers to the saints. You're looking at all of these things that are anti-scriptural. Um, you know, requirement for veneration of icons, which is a violation of the second commandment. Um, all of these things. Really, what you're looking at is a system where the gospel is virtually absent. Um, it, it's 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 there. It, it's there if you look for it, but it's really heavily obscured um, by all of these other elements, all these other things. And so, the biggest danger is that you got to dig and dig and dig to actually find the gospel. And you should be able to walk into any church on any Sunday morning and see the gospel presented to you clear as day. Um, you know, one, one of the things, you know, I'm an Anglican. One of the things that I love about the prayer book is um, that the 1662 Book of Common Prayer was called by one liturgical theologian the only successful attempt in history to encapsulate the doctrine of sola fide as a liturgy. <laughs> right. So and that's one of the things I love about it. You know, so you should be able to walk mm -hmm. in, hear the gospel, see it presented unambiguously without the sh tiniest shadow of a doubt of what is believed, what's being taught and that Christ is being glorified. That is the number one. Um, that's the number one danger. Um, the other thing, and I haven't talked about this yet, but um, is the issue of the extreme exclusivity okay, of, of, of the church um, because they believe that they are the church um, and they believe in, in the doctrine of no salvation outside the church. Right. So, you know, they'll downplay this, but on paper, that is what they believe. Um, you know, the canons of the ecumenical councils actually say that you're not supposed to pray with heretics. Well, they consider non-Orthodox people heretics. So the question that I usually ask people, um, that I'll ask young men when they come to me, and I, I will say to them, are you prepared to say that your godly Baptist grandmother who led you to Jesus is outside of the grace of Christ? If you're not prepared to say that, then you need to not become Orthodox. But if you are prepared to say that, by all means, go ahead. Um, and th those are probably two of the biggest dangers, I would say. All right, final question yep. here. Uh, what can Reformed, you're Anglican, I'm mm -hmm. Presbyterian, what can we be doing uh, 
is there things that we can learn from Eastern Orthodox in particular oh, as far as capturing these young men? Absolutely. Bring them in the gospel. Yeah. What, what are the things that we can learn? So um, and this is going really, to sound really strange because, you know, a lot of times when people are making a, an argument or something against something, they like, they like to begin with all the good things that they learned from it up front and then hit the – I'm doing the reverse of that. I'm going to say the good things about Eastern Orthodoxy now. Okay. Okay. Sure. The things that I took away from Eastern Orthodoxy that I still take away is the reverence for worship, right? When you come before God's presence, you are coming to something that is completely other than you're doing the other six days of the week. Okay. You're coming into a space that is used for no other purpose than to worship God. You know, this is not a space where you're coming in to have social time or to pick up chicks or whatever it is. This is, this is, you know, you are coming in here to worship the almighty triune God of the universe. And, and that's huge because the Orthodox are nothing if not Trinitarian. You hear the Trinity all over the place, right? You know, there is beauty. There is uh, seriousness. There's no, there's not, the Orthodox liturgy is not something that has a great deal of levity to it. You are there to worship God and you take it seriously. Um, and that's something that I think we really need to learn because I think the Reformed tradition had that at one point um, and had it for a long time. Um, it's only in the last century or so that we've gotten a little bit flippant and a little, maybe a little too casual about our approach. Um, and it doesn't have anything to do with what you wear to church or if you stand there with a coffee cup in your hands. It's about the attitude that we encourage people to have when they come to worship and what they're doing in the church building itself. Um, you know, are you coming in with a quiet, expectant heart? Are you coming in having prepared your heart to receive this, the sacrament if you're having the Lord's Supper that day? Um, have you, have you asked the Lord to prepare your heart to receive the word that's going to be preached? Are you, are you leading your family and family worship every day? Um, you know, these things are things that the Orthodox take seriously and we tend not to. Um, the other thing, and I, I gave a talk about this, um, at a Reformation day, um, event this past year. Um, and I encouraged the, the folks at this, at this church the Reformation tradition, and by that I mean the whole Reformation tradition, whether continental or, or British, the Reformation tradition in and of itself is a beautiful and deep well of a tradition. Do not simply allow for, you know, as, as Carl Truman says, don't let tulip be all there is. You know, we have, I mean, that's, that's just the tip of the iceberg. You know, uh, you know, the five points of Calvinism, that's great, and it's true, but it's not all there is. You know, we have, a, we have beautiful confessional traditions. Um, you know, you guys, you guys are Westminster, I'm sure, right? So the Westminster mm -hmm. standards are beautiful. The, the reformational liturgical tradition, whether, um, you know, notice I say reformational, not reformed, because you, you, can, you can throw the Lutherans into that, too. You know, whether it's Lutheran or Anglican or, you know, uh, old, old Scottish Presbyterian or whatever. I mean, these are beautiful, the German Reformed tradition, beautiful liturgical traditions. Um, and so, you know, we don't, we want people to know that liturgical beauty and liturgical piety, deep rooted worship practices are not the exclusive parlance of traditional Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. And, and we want to to express that to people. But also, 
one of the things, and I, I taught this on Sunday school uh, on Sunday um, at a church I was supplying at. One of the things that we have neglected that the Orthodox do probably better than anybody is encouraging individual devotion to the spiritual disciplines. Um, whether that's Bible reading, prayer, fasting, <laughs> you know, you know, uh, you know what they call almsgiving, all of these spiritual disciplines that we've been asked to do by the Lord, uh, or at least implied that we're going to do them, are neglected. And so, the Orthodox put these things out there as these are these are how you live the Christian life: you fast and you pray and you give money to the poor and you come and you participate in the sacraments. And it's like that's that doesn't belong just to them. Those are biblical things that we're commanded to do. And, and we on the reformed end of things have really dropped the ball. And so we need to, ex we need to express to our men, like, listen, guys, things are expected of you here too. Um, you know, and we have a theology that glorifies God more than any other system of theology that's ever been put together. Um, so put those two things together, put together a rich historical and liturgical tradition a deep biblical, robust biblical theology that glorifies God and spiritual disciplines that call men to be men. And I think you get those three things together and we keep our guys. Amen. Well, hey, brother, it has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks for having me, brother. Uh, if our listeners wanted to reach out to you, they had more questions. Uh, how might they get in contact with you? I'm on Facebook. Um, that's about all I got right now. Um, you can also find my uh, my church plants, Facebook, Reformation Anglican Church, uh, Westchester, Ohio. You can find that on Facebook, uh, and I can, I'll can i answer things there. Um, you can also shoot me an email if you want. Uh, I can give you an email to put in the uh, email address to put in the show notes if you like. Uh, I respond to things that way. Um, but uh, but generally, I'm, I'm on social media. I'm fairly easy to find. So. All right, brother. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You know, outside the religious sites in Jerusalem, there were many vendors selling religious wares. They love to invite you into their store. They're like, come in and it, it, it's free to look. And then they find you something that you like and they only hardly let you out of the store. They, 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 they often start off asking for $600 for something. And then when you're like, no, I'm not paying that. Then they're like, I like you. I give you a good deal. I'm an honest man. I have the best of all of Jerusalem. You want old coins? I have a widow's mite. We can make a deal, friend. We can. And and so they 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 just in fact, in one store they they took something that I was looking at, put it in a bag, wrapped it up, and gave it to me, and said, "This is a gift. It's a gift, only for this price." And then after uh, you negotiate and you walk out of the store, and then it's this whole deal where you finally get it down to the price that you want. Anyways, they would sell these old-looking coins. And, and now I'm a sucker for uh, for history and, and ancient things. In fact, I found, don't tell anybody, I found a piece of the Church of the Sepulchre that was kind of falling off, and I took a part of it and brought it to my house. It was, And so now I have a piece of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, a little, a little rock. I didn't steal it. It was just a little rock kind of hanging there. Anyways, it would have been really cool to own some coins from the time of Christ. The problem is that in the 15th and 20th century, uh, uh, there were a ton of false shekels produced in Europe. So from the 15th to the 20th century, just a lot of old looking shekels 
They were to be pilgrim mementos, but often made to really look old, and so they can be very deceptive. They look old, they look warm, and when you see them in these shops, they you just think, man, this has to have been from ancient times. This would have had to have been, maybe, maybe Jesus held these coins. Maybe uh, it was the coin found in the fish or whatever. But the problem is they aren't. They're not as old as you think they are. They have the appearance of something that has withstood the test of time, but they're just fake. And so these vendors get a lot of people to choke up money for them. You buy it thinking you found a treasure and later find out that it's less than 100 years old. Or maybe, maybe if you're really lucky, 500 years old, but not to the time of Christ. Friends, Eastern Orthodoxy is the same way. There's some good things to say about it. I love the aesthetic. I like the sound of their chants, and there it is challenging. There were some things that uh, Matthew Joyner told us about how they challenge men, and uh, as Reformed Christians, we need to maybe learn some of these lessons. But ultimately, much of the practices that they say are ancient are actually far newer than you realize. Worse than that, though, many of their practices are a departure from the faith given once for all to the saints. The problem, the main problem, is it doesn't have the gospel given by the apostles. And therefore, it lacks life. It's a counterfeit to what men really need. Because what men need is the gospel of Christ. That is what will withstand time. That gospel is what upholds the church that the gates of hell cannot prevail against. What men need is the holy scriptures as their highest authority. They need a faithful local church with men who lead according to the word. They need the people who actually cared about the church fathers and what they taught, which is the reformers, right? It was the Protestant reformers who spent time translating and studying the ancient fathers because they wanted to go back to the sources. It wasn't the Roman Catholics or the Orthodox. They, they just were consumed with the medieval sources. But it was the reformers who wanted to go back. It was the reformers who reformed family life and restored the patriarchy. John Knox's first blast of the trumpet against the monstrous regiment of women is more based than anything Easter Orthodox has to offer. It's the reformed faith who has a warrior God, who pursues his people, conquers his enemies, and overcomes even the will of sinners. It has a savior who took the wrath of God to atone for sin. You know, after my interview with Pastor Joyner, he sent me a message saying that he left one thing out that he thought was so important, he just wasn't sure how to say it. And this is what he said, quote, I was really struggling to find a way to say that one of the big reasons that I departed from Orthodox theology is because frankly, their depiction of God makes him a weakling. It's an emasculated religion because they have an emasculated view of God. God, in their view, can't do anything for you at the end of the day. All he did was create a path to gain his acceptance, which is ultimately a list of chores like fast, go to church, pray. You might even, it's just like a honey-do list. But it's all up to you to pursue him. God takes the feminine role of the pursued rather than the pursuer. It's like in the old days when a man wanted a wife, he had to pursue her, do all these things to court her, work to build a house for her, and only then did he receive the reward of actually having her. And that is what salvation by asceticism is. That is the salvation that Eastern Orthodoxy gives you. 
Now, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Patriarchy Podcast. If you watch this on YouTube, subscribe. Click the bell to get notified of the latest episodes. Click like and share with all your friends. Until next time, if you've not yet bowed your knee to Christ, now is the time. Repent and believe. And if you have, this is our call as men. Build, fight, protect, and lead. This is The Patriarchy.